Today's episode of the Strength Talk podcast hosted by UpDoc Media is brought to you by the Arc from Verve. If you want to improve your posture, the Arc has you covered. Developed by a physical therapist, designed by an engineer, made in the USA, the Arc is going to improve your posture and relieve that neck and back pain once and for all. What is up, guys? Welcome to the brand new Strength Doc podcast hosted by UpDoc Media with me, Dr. John Russell. I want to get one thing clear. This is not going to be your average fitness podcast, and I'm sure as hell not your run-of-the-mill strength coach. What's going on, guys? Dr. John Russin back with the brand new Strength Doc podcast hosted by UpDoc Media. Today, I have Eric Bach, one of the leaders in athletic performance development with us. This is a great episode. We're going to get into it, talk a little bit more of the X's and O's of training, but also dive deep into the fitness industry and how Eric has been so ultra successful in his writing and speaking endeavors. Let's get right into it. Here's Eric Bach. What's going on, guys? Dr. John Russin here with the next episode of Strength Doc Podcast. I have my man, Eric Bach here of Bach Performance. What's going on, man? Hey, man. How are you doing? Glad to be here. Yeah, we've had this on the books for a while, so finally we got it down and we got a little bit of time here because I know everyone's been wanting to hear from you. They've been reading your stuff, they've been watching your videos, learning mass amounts, but finally we have you here, uncut, unfiltered, Eric Box time. <laughs> here we go, man. Here we go. I'm excited. So I have a question for you right off the bat that I've been wanting to ask you for a while. I mean, you're so well published in the industry. You've been everywhere. Your name is literally flowing through the industry on a daily basis. What is the favorite article that you've ever written, even if it's not something that's been published? Favorite article? Um, You know what? Article I put out probably about a year ago and was covering about everything you possibly could on the front squad. Um, That was a good one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm a huge proponent on the front squad. Um... Man, I used to do a ton of Olympic lifting, so I understood the value from that perspective. However, as I began training more and more athletes, I was able to see the differences that we have with the front squat, uh, better anterior core engagement, thoracic extension, all the way through the movement. And I really saw it as the ultimate kind of risk-reward exercise in terms of uh, in terms of squat movement patterns. You know, a lot of uh, coaches are going that way with that front rack position lately, I've seen. You know, the last couple of years, there's really that, like you said, that uh, cost-benefit ratio that you have to do with your athletes, whether you're going to load any movement with, uh, you know, that barbell on the back, or you're going to front load the movement that might be a little bit more transferable into sport, but also into the longevity of like a lifting career if fitness is your thing. Exactly. You know, I, I see a lot of coaches that, that really love the front squat now and a lot of great content coming out about it. You know, for a while, there's such a big push in the fitness industry, really hammering the big three, the power lifts and powerlifting has been such a big, um, you know, such a big area of emphasis lately. And I think that's great. Everybody should know how to squat, deadlift, bench press. However, I think as we're seeing long term, if people are applying all the same principles to elite level power or from elite level power lifters and putting into a general population or people who are sitting at a desk all day, you know, we're running into a lot of different issues related to that style of training long term. And I think the front squat's a great way to bridge the gap between, you know, lifting heavy weights, getting stronger, more athletic, but minimizing some of the issues with, uh, you know, back squatting over the long term. I, I have no issue with the back squat for the most part, but you know, anything done long term or with um you know without a big attention to everyone's unique movement patterns, um, then we run into issues. Right. And I think it's important for people to realize that 
you like to go heavy, you like to throw some heavy shit around in the gym, and for you to be kind of going through and front racking a lot of your people says a lot to your coaching because you're not only just coaching that general population. I know you got some sick athletes over there in Denver too. Yeah, exactly. And I appreciate that. <laughs> you know, you know, like I said, it's very hard to apply the same principles universally to, to people. I mean, you can't, you can't load everybody the same. Um, however, you can look at, you know, what movement pattern is going to be the most beneficial, what's going to have the best risk reward ratio, you know, with your athletes and, and what population that you work with or what population you more or less fit into and find out which movement patterns and principles you can apply to your training. Yeah, for sure. Everything's got to be individualistic. Everyone needs something custom for them and not even on a program by program basis. Sometimes it's on a day by day basis and having that coach there to identify where you're at on a daily basis is one of the biggest things that comes through good coaching. You know, if anyone can write a program, anyone can follow a program, but the execution and the modifications on a daily basis, I think that's where the magic's made. 100% it is it is absolutely crazy you know especially if you've been working with athletes for a while the same athletes you can tell you know right away in the warm up are they mentally engaged are they just going through the motions um you know are they fatigued is it more of a neural fatigue is it a soreness and you have to be able to make adjustments on the fly to those little things that you see personally i walk in every day and i'm asking my clients hey how are you feeling and i try to read their body language just based on their dynamic warm up that we go through and you know the inflection in their voice and, you know, what can I gather off of that and what tweaks do I need to make into that workout? You know, dynamic warm-ups are important, one, to like prime the neuromuscular system, to get some blood flow going, all that stuff. But from a coaching standpoint, I think the dynamic warm-up is the most important thing from a diagnostic standpoint. It gives you the time, that five to seven minutes, sometimes up to 12, just to look at where your athletes are at that day. And that's priceless. It's not just going through the motions. It's trying to figure out how you can best program or modify for that day. And that's something that, uh, you know, people want the perfect dynamic warm-up. But in all actuality, you know, it can be pretty simple. You know, you can individualize it for people, but it's something that needs to be simple. But it's more for the athlete to see where they're at on that day and also for the coach to really identify any pitfalls that might be in their training session that day too. Yeah, 100%. You know, it's going to really change day by day. Um, you know, and that's where the idea of, you know, auto-regulation comes into training. You can have the perfect plan set up. However, there's so many other day-to-day -day stressors that we need to take into account, you know, when we're looking at our programming as, as a whole. Um, I believe it was Brian Mann who quoted a research study at, uh, at the University of Missouri, and they were looking at, you know, what is the highest percentage of injuries throughout the year um, for, uh, I, believe it was, I believe it was a football team. Mm-hmm. And looking at those numbers, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't preseason, it wasn't in-season, it was actually during academic, academic uh, testing times, so finals and stuff like that. So what that tells you is if you have athletic populations that are in you know, different age brackets, have different things going on, you have to look at stress as an entire system. You know, it, it can't just be, what has our training load been recently? You have to also wonder, you know, what else is going on? What's going on in their personal life? What other stressors they have going on? How did they sleep last night? How are they eating? And you have to be able to draw some of those conclusions just based off a five to seven to 12 minute period, you know, with your athletes or with the interaction. I agree. And RPE is something that I use for certain athletes, but I've actually been chewed out on it a couple times because 
using it for too many athletes that aren't at a mastery level for a lot of their movements, a lot of their capacities, really pushing the limits. I almost view it as for you know some of the general population that they don't exactly know where their 10 out of 10 is. And there's not many people walking this earth that know what a 10 out of 10 truly is on an RPE. Like I think some professional bodybuilders, some professional power lifters, the guys running around on field on Sundays, those guys I think can tap into that. But really for the general public, like it's hard to identify. I've seen from a five to a six, a six to a seven. And like if anyone's getting over eight in like a general gym, you're doing really well for yourself. So that's something that I've seen where people almost take it easy just because, okay, I'm doing RPE today. I don't have to go by the program. But if you have that experienced athlete, I've seen it work wonders as well. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. Yeah, I, you know, I really do agree with you there. And I think, once again, you know, it comes down to the population that you're working with and not using it as an excuse because at the end of the day, you know, you do have to get in the gym and do some work. Um, you know, you can't bastardize your program because an RPE scale says don't go over an eight. <laughs> but, you know, like you said, if your eight's a five, um, you know, at the end of the day, you got to put in the work. And like I said, that's going to come down to each, you know, coach's individual population that they're working with and that particular client um, or, you know, at the same time, help maybe helping them redefine what their scale is, getting them out of their comfort zone without necessarily putting them at risk. There was a smart article uh, Scott Abel wrote a couple weeks ago on T Nation, and he was talking about rest periods and almost uh, alluding to the fact that RPE is totally different for the level of mastery that you're at in the iron game. You know, he compared, uh, you know, a 20 rep squat of somebody doing 500 pounds and literally just tweaking out those last two reps to, you know, the, the general fitness guy that's doing 185 for 20 reps. You know, there's two different things to, you know, that perceived 10 out of 10. So, for most of the people, I think they just need to be pushed a little bit harder on certain things. Uh, you know, it doesn't have to be intense, 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 but they have to feel what it is to really push intensity for a couple sets every day, I think. Um, wh- what do you think about that, too? I mean, obviously, you do a lot of auto regulation. Do you push your guys past the brink at points? I do, but it's got, always has to be in a controlled manner. Um, right, right, you know, right. it's got to be in the safest environment we can, you know, for example, you know, if we're talking, you know, a high performance athlete that thinks somebody outside the iron game, you know, we, we all read a lot about, you know, fitness and getting stronger. However, when we apply some of the same principles, we really have to bring in that risk reward principle again, um, as it pertains to high level athletes. So maybe instead of having them go for a 20 rep squat, Maybe we're doing, you know, some high intensity interval work, really pushing our anaerobic threshold, um, getting them out of the comfort zone in a different way. Yeah, so it comes down to managing, you know, the risk reward that you have with any particular athlete or client. So it might mean getting them out of their comfort zone in a different way. Um, You know, personally in my training, I'm completely fine loading up the weight, going heavy, going high reps when I'm heavy, almost wanting to throw up out of the squat rack. But you try to get me doing some high intensity intervals on a rower or on a versa climber or something like that, man, that that really gets me out of my comfort zone and that takes me up in that eight, nine, ten region that's that's really hard for me to get. Yeah, anytime that I really wanna push somebody in their programming to, you know, like you said, that eight, nine, almost ten, three things really come to mind. One, we need to be damn sure that your spinal stability is locked and loaded. Like number one. First and foremost, that's the thing that's usually the breaker of you know tweaking something, having an injury due to pushing yourself too hard. 
Once the spine is locked in, okay, cool. Do we have tension through the upper thoracic spine and shoulder girdles? That's number two. And finally, bringing it all through, do we have tension and do we have that spiral effect through the lower extremities? So if we can really lock in that pillar, I feel good about anything that we're doing, any rep, any amount of weight, you know, Obviously, we're not going to overload somebody super maximally, but I feel good about the safety of that. And really, it's when that mechanical breakdown happens between the shoulders, the core, the hips, that's when you call a set. You know, that's when we don't hit that 10 out of 10. But that's where the coach is and that's where the athlete needs to identify that as well. So you're not fighting anything except for the movement that you're doing. And even simplifying things like, uh, you know, taking some range of motion out of the equation sometimes or even simplifying your implement, you know, anything. You know, there's a lot of diversity that you can throw at somebody and still get very intense with things. Now, when I've seen your most recent work, you know, the last year or two, I, you're really my go-to guy for bridging the gap between high-performance athletic training and general population. And I had a mentor early on in my career that his motto was train the Joes like the pros. And I was like, all right, that's pretty cool, you know, and I saw it work and I trained that way and it really made sense to me. But not a whole lot of people are doing that. You know, you're implementing throws and sprints in the general population and that's something rare, but I think it should be more mainstream. Why do you think that's not uh, something that's like really popular when it should be? Honestly, because I don't think a lot of people know exactly how to do it. Um, you know, you can read an article about all of a sudden implementing hill sprints, but it's really difficult to bridge the gap um, with your clients that haven't moved, they haven't ran, they haven't done a lot of this stuff for quite a long time, and then all of a sudden implement all these things at once. Um, I think there's a building up period that, that a lot of athletes need or a lot of, uh, you know, general population clients need to be able to move and jump and do some of these things. Um, for example, my clients, we generally start off with some basic skipping for the first few weeks, just to condition the tissues of the lower leg to handle impact. Uh, we do a lot of jump roping, um, a lot of these things to really build up a little bit of tolerance before we really get into some more of the athletic style movements. Um, you know, as we're talking the heavy, heavy lifting squats, big three, all this stuff has been very popular. And I think that's the big reason that, uh, we haven't seen a lot more of this transfer of, performance training in the general populations because you know powerlifting is really the cream of the crop right now in terms of what's hot in the industry and that's what people are pushing yeah and i guess the other thing to look at with the more athletic movements like the throws the jumps all of that like it's very hard to execute those things properly in a 24-hour fitness like you need to be in a certain kind of gym that has the equipment for the most part. So, I mean, if you don't have the right kind of balls to throw, you're going to be throwing a bouncy ball and hitting yourself in the face. You know, if you don't have a proper box, you're going to be, you know, killing yourself, going Julie Fouché style. Like, you know, there's just a lot to go wrong. And I think it's almost like shunned upon in most gyms that they don't want this stuff. You know, they just want people to lock into the machines and just go to town and then go on the hamster wheel for a half hour. And I think I wrote this like a year or two ago, but the, the use of the, the plates with the edges on them, so like the hexagon plates, yes. I think that was genius for somebody to start implementing in like the general fitness population just to keep people from doing proper movement. <laughs> like, I think it was as simple as like, all right, we don't want anyone deadlifting anymore. Definitely don't want to take it from the floor, the bar from the floor, and for sure no Olympic lifting. 
how can we do this? And then oh, here comes those plates. <laughs> and I think uh, people trying to do all the athletic movements without the proper equipment, that's when it gets into a slippery slope. Yeah, you know, any tool is going to require proper knowledge of how to use it. You know what I mean? Um, and that's where we're kind of missing some of these other aspects of it. And as you mentioned, the facilities as well don't, like I said, you don't want to go to a 24 and try to start doing a, you know, a medicine ball back toss. You're going to take out a ceiling fan and you're dead for life. So, you know, nobody wants that. However, there are different ways that we can kind of, you know, work around these things. Um, I did, like, I think you mentioned, I put out an article for T Nation a few, um, a few weeks ago, some non-barbell training power development exercises. So these are, these are things that you wouldn't be able to do in most commercial gyms, like an overhead slam, a back toss, rotational throw, stuff like that. However, you can also get you know, various other stimulatory effects of the nervous system that are fairly similar by using submaximal weights. For example, you know, maybe you want to do a squat jump. You'll have room to grab two dumbbells and perform a squat jump, or you can do some submaximal lifting with an emphasis on power. Um, you know, I think as we go through this industry, you know, we're seeing CrossFit was just a, such a huge boom right now, and that's making more things mainstream that are movement-based, throwing-based, um, Olympic lifting. And I think it's going to continue to migrate, you know, towards some of the sports-specific type type of training modalities that are uh, that are in the industry right now. So I think we're heading in the right direction. Um, however, you can get some of the same exact benefits, you know, lifting lighter weights a little bit faster and working with the tools that you do have, even if you are at like a 24 hour fitness or a lifetime where you're not allowed to necessarily throw things, jump all over the place and, uh, into Olympic lifts. Yeah, for sure. And I think people struggle when they're out of like the training utopia, you know, like they're not running around at your facility in Denver. They're at, you know, some run of the mill gym. And I know like people want to diversify, but it's just that confidence factor and not knowing how to execute. And then as soon as, uh, somebody has a built-in excuse like, oh, well, we don't have the Dynamax balls, um, can't do the throws, you know. It's something that they just, like, throw away. And in actuality, it takes a lot of time, energy, commitment to really find a way to do what you want to do when you have some challenges, whether it be equipment or the gym or even your timing of how much time you have to devote to your training every single week. You know, where there, there's a will, there's always a way, but I think just – the writing that you're doing is really showing that there can be some flexibility to some training. You can get a lot of shit done in a matter of 45 minutes, a couple days a week. And it's against everything that's coming out in our industry that like, oh, everything needs to be perfect on the program side of things. In actuality, it doesn't matter because most people can't execute the basics anyways. So a lot can be done out of the most basic things, uh, the least amount of time possible, and just doing things that uh, if you look into them and you actually study some mechanisms like you're writing about, like I'm writing about, you can do it with success. Exactly. It comes down to implementing the tool and, you know, getting more done with less, you know, the big focus has to be on quality of movement rather than just necessarily quantity and getting so much done. If you can do, you know, a couple reps at an exercise, master it, before your technique breaks down, that's exactly what we want. If you can do one or two explosive exercises instead of five or six, awesome. Take what you can get, make the best of it, you know, keep focusing on the best form and movement patterns that you can, but there are different ways to do things. It doesn't have to be so cut and dry that you have X, Y, and Z program that says you need to hit all these exercises. No, if it doesn't work within the constraints of your, of your life, of your schedule, make adjustments to still get the benefits and move on. I agree. I agree a hundred percent. 
Now, going back to something that we touched upon before, uh, I loved your article. I think it was this year. It was uh, Stop Doing Box Jumps Like a Jackass. And I had written about box jumps, uh, I think, a couple months before that, just like touched upon it. And then you just nailed this article. And I was like, oh, finally, somebody wrote this. <laughs> did you did you like writing that one? And did you get some shit after it? No, I really didn't get much in the way of shit on that one. I thought I was going to, <laughs> you know, but um, no, I had a lot of positive feedback from that article because, I mean, we all know somebody that's butchered their shins or their wrists on a box jump, right? and right. it is not pretty. You've seen people get stitches from it. You know, like it all comes down to using the tool the way it's meant to be used, and there's so many better ways. And one thing I touched on with the box jump article was using box jumps as a metabolic conditioning tool. Right, right. Especially when you see these boxes with a sharp, like, wooden edge. What are you thinking? It's like running, I don't know, it's like running doing burpees with scissors in your hands. Um, but, you know, there, there are better ways to do things. Once again, use the box jump for the tool that it's meant to be. You know, power development with a lower impact and move on from there. I think, yeah, people watch on TV and they see, like, box jumps times a thousand for a metabolic finisher. And that's what they automatically implement. But you and I know and most coaches know that it's a neuromuscular development activator at best, you know, used after a dynamic warm-up really to prime the neuromuscular system for some PAP. And it's nothing more, nothing less. And it just turned into something crazy. I don't I don't know how. Well, I think you you said the C word before. I think that may play a part <laughs> in it, but I I drive myself crazy seeing this. I, I train multiple days a week in a, a you know just a general population gym, and I see people going nuts, like literally doing box jumps and burpees between like heavy deadlifts with the hex plates. And I'm like, oh Jesus Christ! <laughs> just put my hood on and go do my own set. <laughs> now when you're when you're switching your focus, so you know, say a coach comes in, really gives you some great ideas to start to implement. Is your focus on changing up your personal programming so you can get it to a mastery level where you're going to be a better coach to really coach up your athletes once you really just lock down something like, you know, your Olympic lifts, that kind of stuff? Or are you doing it solely for yourself to challenge yourself? You know, it's both, you know, because if I want to implement these things to my athletes, I have to be able to show proof that I can do it. Right. You know, the the immediate way to discredit yourself as a coach is to go out and do something incorrectly, show your athlete how to do it incorrectly and have something go wrong or try to demo something. You can't, you can't even demo it. You know, you're not going to have any buy-in from your athletes, or your clients. It's just not going to work. So, you know, with any presentation, any seminar, anything I see, I always look at it from the perspective of, you know, this person's an expert in their field and it's something that I'm not an expert on. You know, I'm the dumbest guy in the room. If you want to go with a cliche quote, what can I take from their practice and apply it to the population that I work with and how does it fit in? You know, for example, we could talk about a, about a clean progression and I'm still going to progress my athletes probably a little bit differently in a clean than somebody's working strictly with weightlifters who are trying to compete at the highest level. Um, just based on the time demands that I have with a athlete and other things I have to get focused on in their programming. However, I, I do feel like I, I, as a coach, we all need to master certain skills in order to teach them to our best ability. And for a lot of us, that means practicing the things that we are actively learning and getting pretty damn good at them and then working to implement them in, uh, in their training for their athletes. So you're saying practice what you preach in much fewer words. Yes. <laughs> I, I had that conversation with Lee boys a couple weeks ago and it's like, 
our industry has been full of guys that sit behind a computer most of the day and never coached anyone and they damn well don't lift like so i don't know how they're doing this you know if you're truly passionate about human performance and movement how can you not go and try to better yourself every day for your own physicality let alone go and coach somebody else through it uh there's a lot more than the x's and o's of athletic performance hypertrophy strength there's a lot more than that and it's actually getting results for yourself having a mastery literally having your own experiment be your body and then really broadening out and doing it for more and more and more people to the point where you are the master 100 percent, man i mean I'm, I'm trying to stay off a soapbox here but i'll go right on the soapbox this is a strength talk <laughs> podcast man 100 percent, though that's a huge scary thing i'm seeing in the industry is you know things are growing so fast and media is growing so fast we can get so much information out you know via youtube vimeo facebook twitter any social media site instagram all the stuff all these different websites that are becoming huge and as fitness is becoming more mainstream that we have so many coaches that are directly going from you know a certification probably not even a four-year degree getting directly into writing and coaching people online without having coached anybody in real life first you know i have i have no issue with people moving the online route i mean i coach a lot of clients online um However, you have to get the experience of working with people in person and testing out these different ideas with different populations before you, you know, become an online expert or guru. You know what I mean? I mean, it's really scary to me that we have, we have coaches coming out now that can look at these advanced training principles, PAP, for example, and say, Hey, this worked really well for me. They've been training maybe 10, 12 years, um, and very well, well versed but without testing this on other populations or seeing how it affects, you know, people at different training ages and different limitations to blindly apply it to clients across the board is, uh, is scary. I do think the coaches in our industry and the trainers are getting academically smarter. I think a lot more kids are coming out with exercise science degrees and then they're going into things like master's degrees in exercise physiology and there's just so much academia that it's hard to turn it off once you get in the trenches. I, I truly believe in that. You know, I've obviously been through doctorate level education, master's, undergrad, all that stuff. But the whole time, you know, I was like, man, this stuff is like so academic. You know, it's by the books. And there was a big difference between the books and when you stepped in the gym and started to coach yourself and somebody else. There was a huge difference, and I'm seeing that a lot. Uh, a lot of young students reach out to us, and I love talking to you guys. And the first thing I say is make sure you're training yourself, and if you want to make some extra money, make sure you go and be a personal trainer through undergrad. Go get your certification. Start getting eyes on people and start learning how to coach, the sociology of coaching, the physiology of coaching, everything, because that's going to really lead you no matter if you're a physical therapist, chiropractor, strength coach, personal trainer, you need to learn how to coach. And that's one of the biggest things that I see that uh, the academically minded people are coming out without that skill set. I agree 100%. You know, the two really have to work together. You need the academics, you need to understand how things work, but you also need to understand 
all the other factors that come into play when you try to implement something or how the body's going to work. You know, there are so many different factors. You mentioned the sociology of being in the gym, the human interaction, um, getting through to your clients, clear messages, the psychology. It, it's so full, fully encompassing that that balance just needs to be strived for by everybody. I think every coach, they went through when they were younger, this experimentation phase. I know I did. I know you did it as an athlete, and it was almost like you didn't know exactly what you were doing, but you wanted to learn, and you wanted to just try some stuff out because you had that drive to do something physically and to do something that was new and exciting to you. And I think as coaches get more and more experience, that excitement is still there, but their knowledge just gets further and further advanced. And I think that's a powerful thing if you can still keep that drive in your personal practices, but the, the coaching methods that you use with your people, but just build up the experience and the foundation of your knowledge. Those are powerful things. And it only comes with time. Time, time, time is what you need. It, it does become more difficult, as you're saying, you know, as you become more knowledgeable, you're wondering how, how will X affect Y? Um, you know, what, what will happen if I do this higher up set of squats? How am I going to feel tomorrow? How is this going to affect my deadlifting session two days from now? You know, as we get more experience, we have all these different principles that are constantly going in our head, you know, wondering how this is going to affect other things instead of every now and then just kind of relaxing and saying, fuck it, let's have some fun <laughs> and find out after the fact, um, you know, not to a point where we're, where we're negligent and we're being overly risky, but um, we do have more of a filter, you know, the older that we get in our training. So I think it helps every coach to be able to more or less relax a little bit and get back to why we really got in this field in the first place. We all love to throw weight around, have a great time, challenge ourselves, push ourselves to get better. And now we want to apply the same principles to other people. However, we have to actually practice that and practice what we preach and continue to enjoy our training for ourselves to enjoy doing what we're doing. Now with, uh, with your ebook, you know, how much time did you actually devote to getting that thing out there? Because I know it takes a lot of time for coaches in the industry that are working those 50, 60 hour a week in the gym. You know, how are you finding time to write a book, write the articles, make the videos? Like, where does it come from? Man, tell you what, besides coffee, we all run on the same, uh, same 24 hour clock. It's just a matter of sucking up and getting it done. You know, no excuses. Um, that's really how <laughs> that's, it's really it. I'll find a way to get it done. If I, if I set a, dot, a deadline with Parkinson's law, I'm going to get it done. I put a time-restricted amount on any goal that I have. I'm going to find a way to get, get it done. So for me, um, I mentioned before, the summer is our busiest time, 8 to 12 clients a day for most days. Um, that meant getting up about 3.30 or 4 in the morning to write for a solid hour, hour and a half before I even got going for the day for sessions. So I'm going to stop you right there. Uh, I'm going to repeat that. So guys, you want to know what it takes to be a big name in the industry like Eric Bach, get up at 3.30 in the morning and start writing and then go to work for 10 hours a day. I think that needs to be repeated because there's no easy way. People find a way to do things. Sorry to cut you off there. I had to repeat that. No, no worries. But that's what it is. I and mean, you have to get it done. You know, we've all, we've all dealt with clients that come up with an excuse and excuse and you know I, I empathize that you're busy and you have a lot of things going on but at the end of the day we all have the same clock you know you me Richard Branson and if you want to achieve great things you know you have to work your ass off I'm all for working smarter and getting systems in place to do so um, but sometimes you just have to do more and be willing to do more than than those around you 
that's that's true and if you have the talent behind you and you have that work ethic literally to just suck it up you know suck up the hurt and just get it done uh there's going to be a lot of good things coming i mean i can remember my my first year writing and running the business running my office all of those things and i remember every weekend was the time that i really had a lot of time to write and to speak and do all that stuff because I didn't have any other time in the week. And it was something that, you know, Friday nights, Saturday nights, Sunday mornings when nobody else was even up, I was there writing things. I was there making sure my content got out because that was the only time we had. You know, we have a family and stuff too. So people find a way to do things if they're truly passionate about it and they just make sure to get it done. Um, but 3.30 in the morning is impressive, man. <laughs> Thank you. Now there's, like I said, plenty of coffee. Um, plenty of coffee involved in that one. It's definitely not always fun, but you know, you got to find the times that work best for you. You know, the same thing with your workouts, you know, once your body primed and ready to go, when can you focus solely on that one task and make things happen? Um, for me, once I start coaching, I mean, my brain is completely focused in on coaching. I can't, I can't coach for five hours, take an hour break to write and then get back in coaching mode and be on top of my game. So, you know, I'm sure you find the same thing. If you, right, if you right. have one task you need to get done, you have to find that focus time for that um, and then get on with your coaching and whatever other tasks you have going on for that day um, when, you're, when you're best at those certain tasks. Well, we do the same thing. Uh, we really just uh, have like almost like four different phases to our day here. Uh, you know, between like engaging on social media, answering emails for clients, and then we move into actually training ourselves then we move into the office, and then we move into, okay, it's time to either write, coach, do whatever we need to do at night. So uh, it's the daily basis, but it's the daily grind, and it's a seven-day-a-week grind. But that's what it takes to do some of these cool things and to get your name out like Eric has done. I mean, literally, that's just what it takes. Now, now I have a question for you. When did you figure out – I mean, a lot of coaches are out there doing great things in their gym – but there aren't a lot of coaches out there in the mainstream. When did you figure out that you wanted to do a little bit more than you're currently doing, you know, in your own coaching and you wanted to move into this online sector, start writing and being a voice of the industry? You know, for me, when I came out to Denver, um, you know, my wife, my wife now, um, so my girlfriend at the time, we had, we had just graduated college and we're kind of looking around and looking for a place to get us kind of out of our comfort zone, get us somewhere we've, we really haven't been, um, you know, really hardly any friends or family out in this area. And we came out to Denver. So when I got out here, I had more or less a sink or swim mentality. And the first thing I really found is I was still getting a ton of questions from people back home. Um, I was getting emails from my past athletes, um, you know, all the time, past clients, family members, you know, back, back in the Midwest. And it really struck me that, you know, the written word and, and getting things out into more of a mainstream audience is going to be able to help more people. If, if I have a good message and I believe that, you know, everything I do can help people, then I think it's almost negligent to not do your best to try to get that word out there and help people. Um, you know, soon I found that, you know, I was coaching a lot and the writing also helped me improve as a coach. It helps give me clarity of thought. Um, that's how I've always learned. If I write something down, you know, while I'm in class, while I'm studying, while I'm reading, I'm going to reinforce that. So I guess it was twofold. It helped me reach a greater audience to help, help more people because at the end of the day, that's what we're really in here for. We want to help people improve their lives through fitness and through performance. And, and then it helped me as well. Um, 
learning and bettering at my craft. So, you know, what was the first thing that you sat down to write? If you can remember back. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> like my first article ever. Yeah. Like you're like, all right, I'm going to do this. And you sat down and what came out at that point? That's a really good question. I should pull that up right now. Uh, <laughs> no, if I the archives. So the first article I really dove into, I think this is Eric at WordPress or Eric Bach performance at wordpress.com. You can probably dig it up and give me some shit after the show, <laughs> but was in the squat mechanics. More specifically, you know, I changed populations as I, ch as I changed gyms. I was working with a, a few more general population clients, not as many athletes. And I was seeing big differences through squat technique that I hadn't seen before. You know, everything I had previously read and learned was, oh, you have to squat this way with a low bar and a wide stance because X, Y, and Z, you know. And I found that these principles didn't always pertain to what I was seeing in person with my clients. So more or less by troubleshooting the squat technique of a lot of different clients and finding what worked best for each person based on limb, lever, length, strengths, weaknesses, you know, jobs that they have, whether they're desk jockeys or whether they're up and moving around all day, um, really trying to troubleshoot issues and help my clients improve their results in the gym. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've seen that most coaches that end up moving into kind of the public sector like you and I have done, for me, I know it's just like, all right, I've had enough of this shit. And then you sit down at the computer and you're like, ah, <laughs> and you write something and it's just like pure flow and passion. And it comes out and you're like, damn, that's good. <laughs> That's pretty good. And I think it deserves to actually go out and for people to read that. I mean, I, I've been writing since like 2011, just little stuff here and there. But really, uh, you know, a year and a half ago was when I really jumped in, uh, got linked up with T Nation, a couple of other websites. And it was one of those things that like I had enough with freaking foam rolling. I wasn't even teaching foam rolling anymore. And I was like, I got to write what I'm doing, you know, because I've had enough with this foam rolling shit. <laughs> so I think it like flowed out of me in like an hour and a half or something like that. It took a long time to edit. And then we're like, all right, this is, this is it. And you know, like that kind of stuff leads to other stuff. And if you can keep on going, I think that's the biggest differentiator. Like you sat down with the squat, I sat down with foam rolling, but I think a lot of people are capable of producing like one cool article but it's so hard to do the stuff that you're doing and coming out with new content every single week. Like, how, how do you do it, man? No, I, honestly, I write everything down. If I have an idea popping in my head, I take a note on my iPhone. I generally always have some paper with me. I'll write down the idea. And, you know, within that same 24-hour period, what I do is I just try to do a brain dump on whatever topic it was that, uh, you know, that really struck me at that moment. So I take notes of whatever it is, and then uh, I guess I just sit down, get complete silence and write down everything I can possibly think about that topic. You know, what are the benefits? What are, what are problems and what's the solution to the problem? Oh man. Hey, can you actually dive into that, uh, that formulating topic just a little bit? I, I know I'd, uh, I think I sent you a mention on Facebook the other day. I'm like, cause you mentioned foam rolling before workouts. Yeah. Yeah. That was, so, uh, what Eric's talking about is I did an interview for stack.com with their editor, Andy Haley. And it was a quick interview on the phone about foam rolling and self-myofascial release techniques. And long story short, it got a lot of attention like throughout the industry. And I mean, there were some simple things that I thought were simple concepts, 
but it really kind of blew people's mind and even rubbed some people the wrong way. Um, you know, I've said it right here on the Strength Doc podcast that I think foam rolling is one of the biggest time wasters that we see in our athletic population, our general fitness population, just because there's no rhyme or reason to the things that we're doing. It becomes one full body foam roll twice a day, every single day for the rest of your life. But in actuality, would you ever squat if you were never getting better at it? You know, you would probably figure out a different way to squat, fix your mechanics, do something for it to yield the results that you want. With foam rolling, it just is a kind of auto auto mode. You just go into it, you roll around, waste some time, and that's about that. But a lot of it, I mean, if you want to delve into the science of it, there's really not a whole lot of reason to be foam rolling before uh, your performance workouts or even if you go out to practice or competition. You know, just neuromuscularly, it's going to kind of dull the neuromuscular reactions in your body. So it's going to slow some of those reactive times. It's going to make the tissues kind of throw into uh, parasympathetic mode. So they're going to relax. That's the last thing you want if you want to be an explosive athlete or you really want to get the most out of your workouts. So what I was getting into in that is it shouldn't, if you're 100% healthy and you're not really working on anything that's killing you, you're not in pain. There's really not a whole lot of uh, good reason to go into a foam rolling routine before your workouts. After the workouts is great because you want to bring down your sympathetic nervous system. You want to kind of tap into the parasympathetic, get some blood returned to the muscles. Like that's the perfect time to be foam rolling. The only time there is a good uh, a good time to foam roll beforehand or do any self myofascial release techniques, uh, including my hands on SMR techniques would be if you're really working on a gnarly dysfunction or really a painful tissue or pattern. And those are the only times. I see that a lot in thoracic extension. So thoracic spine is one of the things that, yes, you can get, have some great success foam rolling beforehand. Uh, IT band, uh, just with the hip mechanics, I've seen really good things there. And you know, there's few and far between, but if you're a dysfunctional, Yes, you can do limited things beforehand, but if you're just totally functional, you're feeling good, you're not really dealing with anything as an athlete, like skip it and get into some better dynamic warm-ups. Exactly. It's, I don't know, that, that's just one of the biggest things we've seen in the fitness industry, you know, with foam rolling specifically, like you need to do like a full body mash before you even pick up a weight or you're going to have no mobility, no stability, and you're going to be completely wrecked. And I thought you nailed it on the head. Um, and right now you were just gave such a thorough, clear explanation that uh, I don't know that really yeah. struck me. Yeah, I, I had some current uh, online training clients of mine read that, and they're like, "Wait, hold on a second! Uh, you have me doing IT band and thoracic spine extension before I work out." I'm like, "It's okay, you know, like read the article." <laughs> so even our own training clients sometimes don't read the full article. Dude, I hate that. Like, wait, did you see this aspect that I that I addressed? <laughs> yeah, that, that's what it is. Now, I'm going to leave you with one, one more question. Uh, this one might be a tough one to answer, but where do you think the fitness industry is headed in the next 10 years? What do you think is the thing that's really going to change the industry for the better that may be around right now or not even popularized yet? Specific to the population that I work with, um, so, you know, a lot of athletes, but then also a general population and kind of convergence there. I believe we're going to see a, a greater emphasis on movement quality and movement mechanics. Um, you know, most of my clients, even if they're, they're not competitive athletes at this point are still, 
about playing recreational sports and doing things. And, you know, you know, the same thing that a lot of people get hurt pulling a hamstring, playing sports, um, or playing a pickup game or, you know, out here in Colorado, we'll see a lot of knees with people who are out skiing or even when I was back in Wisconsin, I would have clients that would come out of Colorado skiing and we'd see like one ACL, you know, every winter from somebody who came out and went skiing. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more of a focus on joint position and movement quality as pertains to actual movement. So not just lifting weights, not to call lifting weights, not actual movement, but in terms of acceleration, deceleration, um, you know, joint angles, when we're stopping, are we staying out of valgus and we're going into various positions with the knee. Can we control the foot through pronation and supination? Um, you know, I think we're going to see a lot more focus on basic joint mechanics. Are we in the right positions? And I think that's good because, like I said before, you're ahead of the game because you're already doing this stuff. We just need more coaches like you doing the right things, writing the right things, coaching the right way, and we're going to be good into the future in our industry. Now, where can people find more about you, uh, your social media, your website? Just give a dump for us. Yeah, first off, you can find me at Bach Performance, so www.bachperformance.com. And I do offer a very active newsletter. I'm, I'm sending you guys messages and free updates and training information a couple of days a week, um, so you can sign up there. Also, I'm very active on Facebook, at Facebook at, for bachperformance.com, and Instagram, instagram.com slash bachperformance. So I'm pretty active on all three of those outlets. Um, you know, posting training videos, training tips, inspirational messages, all that good stuff to help keep you on top of your game and improve your performance. Yeah, make sure to check those out, guys, because, I mean, Eric's my go-to guy when it comes to athletic performance and really just trying to get cool new ideas to take the athletic performance into the general industry. So make sure to check those out because I'm for damn sure going to be checking out that Instagram page on a daily basis because some cool stuff coming out of there. Man, thank you so much for the time today. It was awesome to catch up, and I appreciate you being on. Hey, thank you for having me. Thank you, everybody, for listening. It was great to be here, and uh, hey, hopefully we can do this again soon. For sure, man. Big thanks to Eric Bach for jumping on the Strength Doc podcast today. He is definitely my go-to man when it comes to athletic performance for the general population. So make sure to check out his website, his Facebook page, and his Instagram for more information. All right, guys, until next week, train hard, train smart, and work your ass off. I'm Dr. John Russin with the Strength Talk Podcast, hosted by UpDoc Media.